I had to just remind myself that A, it's not my responsibility to always be the helper. B, I am a team player, but I don't have to say yes to everything to enact that, to be that person. And the fear of backlash, well, that needs to be managed because it's a potentially a real concern. And so I learned how to say no more effectively. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. I'm Farina Hefti, the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. This podcast and our award-winning fellowship program is for parents who want to progress ambitious careers they love whilst being present with the children they love. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. And in fact, there are too many brilliant people stuck on the career ladder after they've had children. And I think we need to change this because it can lead to gender inequality and the same stale, often male, middle-class, full-time people leading our organisations. And I want you, the listeners of this podcast, to get to the top and make it all a bit more interesting and more diverse. I want to give you inspiration, fresh ideas and practical support. I ask senior leaders and thought leaders in this podcast about what they've learned about combining ambitious careers and young children. And you can use this to progress your career in a way that works for you whilst enjoying your young children. Beyond the podcast, if you want to get support from brilliant, like-minded peers and be part of a world-class career development program for parents with senior leader mentoring, then head over to our website on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. Every month we send out new ideas to try and new things to think about. You get access to our free events and information about our award-winning programs. Today's podcast guest, I think, will be extremely popular. Her name is Laurie Vanguard. She is Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Carnegie Mellon University in the US and she is a co-author of the book called The No Club. And as the title says, it's all about saying no. She obviously has written it as a result of her own experience of quite a few years of saying yes and then being landed in massive to-do lists and not having the time for the work that she really wanted to do. But also she looks at it from an academic point of view as well and the evidence and research behind it. So we talk about what the research says about saying no, how saying no is crucial for promotion and how you can learn to say no so that you can do more of the work that you enjoy and the work that you love. Enjoy the conversation. So very warm welcome, Laurie, to the podcast. I am so thrilled to have a chance to speak to you. As I mentioned to you before we came on air, the last few weeks have been quite intense for my personal life. My little one has been in and out of hospital. And so the whole topic of saying no is more relevant than ever. And I just love the concept of a no club. But before we dive in, let's just give people a chance to get to know you. So how about you say who you are, what you do for work and who's in your family? Thanks for having me. I am a professor of organizational behavior. I teach at Carnegie Mellon University in the business school. And I've been there my whole career. So since I graduated with my PhD in 1989, I've been here living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, working in the business school, teaching classes, doing research. Mostly my work focuses on negotiation, conflict management, 
teams and innovation. So that's my area of expertise, but perhaps more relevant today is my own personal journey with respect to the No Club. And we'll get to that. Married with two children. I live in Pittsburgh with my husband, Greg. We were married in 1987. So even before we moved here. And I have two grown children. My oldest daughter lives in Washington, D.C. She works in public health. And my son, he lives in New York, New York City, and he's in medical school. Mm, So a lot of health and medicine in your family, which I'm sure is very handy to have. We do joke that, you know, I'm not the kind of doctor who helps people. I like to think I am, but that's kind of the standing joke. Obviously, if the organizations are all brilliant, the medical organizations, then the doctors have an easy job of treating people. So I think your job is important. I want to ask all my podcast guests and including you, I want to ask you before we dive in, if there's something that you've changed your mind on about combining an ambitious career with young children over the years. So something that you used to assume was true years ago that you don't assume anymore. I grew up in the generation where we were told that we could do anything and do everything and excel. And of course, as we all realize with work and family, you can't be the best at everything. It took me a while to figure out how to get over my perfectionism, my need to be the best at what I'm doing and be on top of the game to being good enough, strong enough that I can both excel in my career and advance in my career at the same time as raising, you know, happy and healthy children. And I certainly, the balance of that changes over time. So early in my career, when I was untenured and I really had to prove myself, the balance leaned toward work. And I also had young kids at the time. And then as I was tenured and I had a little bit more flexibility in my time, then I could shift my attention elsewhere. So I think this journey over time was really the big learning takeaway for me. And for those of us who are not familiar with academia, can you just explain tenured and untenured? Sure. The basic idea is that it relates to academic freedom and the idea that we really want our researchers to be able to study a whole host of topics without worrying about studying something that's very controversial, where they might lose their jobs, that someone doesn't like what they're doing. So tenure allows faculty to basically have job security as long as they're productive and doing their work. So it protects you a bit from the vagarities of who's looking at your research and how you're thinking about that. So for most faculty in the United States, it takes about six to 10 years to earn a tenured position when you're going through the research tenure track. And at that point, you have that additional job security to be able to pick the research problems that you want to study that you think are most important without worrying about someone looking over your shoulder. So at the time when you weren't tenured, it would have been a very insecure position work-wise, like for anyone in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. During that period of time, we were on basically on three-year contracts. So every three years, there's an up or out decision. And so in my university, it's three three three-year contracts. And that third one at the end is when this tenure decision is made. And if you don't get tenure, you have a year to find another job. Mm. So a lot of pressure to perform, a lot of pressure to be seen as a good person, I presume a person that the university wants to keep investing in. And at the time, do you remember, what was your relationship like to saying no in those early years? Yeah, early on. Yeah, I was running around doing everything. My university was pretty good at 
protecting the junior faculty. That's what we called untenured faculty, the junior faculty from service, which is the biggest chunk of non-promotable tasks. We'll talk about that, you know, tasks that aren't important for career advancement, but important to the organization. So I spent a good amount of time protected from some of the university work, not completely, but my profession was also tapping into me and I love doing the extra work. So whenever the opportunity came up, I would say yes and jump into it. I'm not really realizing that there might be a problem here with how I was dividing my time. So I think saying no, it wasn't really part of my repertoire. It wasn't until later when we stepped back and started realizing, you know, I'm on this treadmill and it just keeps going and going that I needed to step back and make a reassessment of how I was spending my time. Mm. And was there a moment that triggered you setting up the saying no club to get a bit of some of your peers? Yeah. One of my colleagues, Linda Babcock, she's one of my co-authors as well. She contacted a group of us and she was going crazy at work, running around from meeting to meeting, really had no time. People were asking her to do things and she had just written a book and she was a very popular speaker and everybody was coming to her to talk at their women's groups and organizations, but there were things she really wanted to say no to, but she felt guilty. She really felt bad and she didn't know how to say no. And she looked at the rest of us. There were four of us who probably were having the same experience. And she called us all together. In fact, she sent us this email. And in the email, she explained her situation. She said, I know you all well, and I imagine you're facing the same craziness in your day-to-day. So I'm going to call us the I Just Can't Say No Club and invite you to join me in meeting at a local restaurant and bar to talk about our shared problem, what we can do about it. And I'm going to send you a doodle poll to find a time because I know all of you and I know you'll say yes. And we did. We all said yes. And that was really the first conversation where we sat down And as Linda was sharing her struggles and Lisa and Brenda and our other member, MJ, were sharing theirs, I sat back and kind of a light bulb went over my head and said, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, like there are things I'm doing that I really should have said no to. I wanted to say no to, but I didn't really think about it as an alternative. And so that started opening my eyes to the fact that I could say no to some things and there are things that I should say no to. I hadn't really thought about that as a possibility. Mm, interesting. And what did you learn about saying no? So what type of things do you say no to now? So obviously, I feel extremely honored that you did say yes to this podcast. Now I realize it was there was a hurdle to get through. What type of things do you say no to now? Yeah, so we think about all the things we do at work. Some of those things are directly tied to our job. They're what we were hired to do. And other things are less so. And so we can think about it as a continuum of promotability. From very low promotability, these are the things that we do for other people. We do in support of the organization, but aren't part of our jobs. They don't advance our careers. We don't get more pay for doing them well all the way to the things that are very promotable, that are on our performance evaluations, that are tracked and monitored and so on. And so that there's this whole range of things. And what we learned to do is both figure out what was more or less promotable in our jobs and then how to say no to the things that were less promotable that we could. And the idea here for us was that it's not about saying no to everything. It's about keeping our workload in balance 
so that we can be a contributor to the organization on multiple fronts and advance in our careers. It's like when you think about the non-promotable tasks, these are things that are, again, as I said, not directly tied to the organization's bottom line or mission. I work at a university and my job is to do research and to teach. And anything I do that's not directly tied to improving my research or improving my teaching is non-promotable. Of course, we also have to do service to the organization. So that's a chunk of time we're expected to do, but we don't get promoted based on it. The idea here is to be able to think about all the tasks and ways we spend our time and think about what's most important to our organization, which is educating students in this case and advancing knowledge. So that's the first. The second is the visibility of the work, right? So you think about all the things that you do that nobody knows about, like onboarding a new employee or helping someone else develop slides for a presentation, or planning the birthday parties, or helping your coworkers resolve conflict, all the things women do, right, that are kind of hidden. The more invisible the work is, the more behind the scenes, the less likely it is to be promotable because you can't get credit for it if nobody sees it, right? And then the third aspect is whether the job uses the skills you were hired for. I'll use myself as an example again. I have specialized skills in studying group conflict. And so if I'm asked to do a non-promotable task or a task that involves organizational behavior, like people at work and how they excel, that uses my expertise. But if I'm asked to sit on a building committee to think about the design of the faculty lounge that really doesn't use my expertise. And I've been asked to do that too, right? So we can think about all of these aspects in terms of promotability. The advice we give to people is to say, think about the things you do and you can start assessing them. Think about those things that you want to say no to that are not the best use of your time if you know you, you want to advance. To an extent, and I may be wrong here, I'm not an academic, but my understanding is that it's reasonably clear what you need to do in terms of I'm saying this now and, and you're looking at me. I may be wrong, but for example, the, the, so you do need to prove that you need to have a certain number of publications that need to be cited and so on. So there's some clarity of what you need to do in order to be promoted. But have you got any reflections on what other people who are in fields where that promotability isn't clear can do to find out which tasks are promotable? You'd think it was clear in a type of job like mine, but what's interesting about it, it may be clear what's promotable, but it's not clear in this what you can say no to in terms of the non-promotable. So people don't think in these terms. When someone asks us to serve on a committee or help someone else out, we think, oh, they've asked us. It came from someone who's in a position of authority. It must be important to spend my time on this because we think about there's lots of factors that come into play in terms of decisions we make about how to spend our time. When we think about most jobs, we see that women do much more of this non-promotable work than others, but they don't think about it as non-promotable, right? So the first thing is to, again, use those three criteria to assess the work you do, right? And how you spend your time. So if you're on a team, and I hear this from our MBA students all the time, I hear it from women across all types of organizations. And we have lots of evidence about it in our book, The No Club, in terms of the work people do that they just don't know if it's promotable or not. So we have a story about one woman who was, usually these are newer employees. So she was new in the organization and she was asked to help with onboarding new 
employees, you know, so she's young, there's new people coming in, you know, spend your time recruiting, setting up social events and so on. And she really believed that this was very important. And to some extent, it is important. It's very important to the organization hiring. But in the end, when it was time for her performance evaluation, she was shocked that nobody noticed and noted the time that she spent doing this. So at that point, she tried to change her allocation of time in terms of how she was doing it. But up to that point, she didn't know. This is very common in jobs that we have. We're asked to do so many things. We assume that people will give us credit for the time we're spending on the task, but that's not necessarily the case. Interesting. It makes me think about so many different things, but there seems to be a value issue here. I know that's not what the podcast is about, and I don't want to challenge your thinking, but I'm just thinking, what can we do? So my instinct, and this is maybe wrong, is that inducting a new person well is really, really important, and it's fair to the individual. It makes the person perform better. Should we try to change that value system of what is promotable? Clearly for a professor. You're not taking me away from the point of why I'm here. So in fact, the major takeaway we learn from the No Club and we learn through our research is that this is not a problem that's a woman's problem. It's not a fix the women problem. It's a fix organizational practices problem. The women can learn to say no. Women can learn what's promotable and what's not and navigate the situation. And there's lots of advice we can give around that. But if organizations and managers and leaders don't change not only who they're asking to do the work, to make sure that the distribution is equitable across people because, hey, this work needs to be done and it's very important, as you point out, but they also have an opportunity to look at tasks that are currently non-promotable, currently that aren't factoring into performance reviews and reassess them in terms of their promotability and move them in. And so some organizations we've worked with did just that, right? They realized the fact that they weren't giving enough credit for work, say, on diversity, equity, and inclusion or other things that improve the culture of the organization. And they needed to walk the talk. For an example, one organization really valued employees supporting one another and really helping one another. So they set up a system where individuals could submit a note about a time when they were helped by somebody else. And that note would go into their colleagues' review. It would be tracked and monitored. And it was a dimension of their performance evaluation. So they started recognizing what they valued, and then they found a mechanism in order to track and reward it. So absolutely. Interesting. Very interesting. And just coming back to your story again, do you remember the first big thing that you said no to that made you feel really cringy inside? It's hard to remember the first. I certainly remember many. It's very hard to say no to someone you care about, which can, you know, certainly happens in our private lives. Also in our professional lives, we have work colleagues we really want to help, we really care about. But we know that it's not a good use of our time to be either serving, doing this task with them. It's not just about help. Like, of course, you know, I'll take an hour and help you figure out how to navigate a situation. I want to mentor new employees. But sometimes there's requests that are beyond the call of duty, and I really can't do it. I have to admit, though, I do have a tendency to say yes to those things because the Allen value system and my identity is very much tied into helping the underdog. 
And so if somebody is in a bad situation with their advisor or they need someone to come in and help get them to the finish line, I've always been the person to do that. Yeah. So this is an example that is a cringy one for me. It was actually in my personal life. This was when my oldest was in daycare and she was having problems kind of adjusting to daycare and the transitions. I was not tenured. And the daycare actually called me up and said, we'd like you to think about having shorter hours for her or coming in fewer days of the week to, I almost felt make it easier on them as opposed to me. And I had to say no, because I couldn't start staying home a few days a week or I had classes to teach. I couldn't adjust my work schedule in order to accommodate that. And that was very uncomfortable for me because it really put my values in place in terms of work-family balance. I was able to work it out eventually and hire someone to come into my house a few days in order to watch my daughter at home, wasn't going into daycare all full-time. In that interim, it was really hard to say no to that type of a request. I couldn't do it. Obviously, it's it's a very challenging example and so often it's our values that it comes down to isn't it and I love that you actually started with an example from your home life because that is often the more difficult thing to say no to I recently said no so here in the UK as I'm sure you've seen in the news in the US as well it's just been the jubilee for the queen's Mm -hmm. reign and there are jubilee parties everywhere including in our daughter's school I'm sure very lovely but I had plans to go to a conference for a long time that I was really excited about. My partner also had something going on. And so none of us could accompany our daughter to that Jubilee party. I said no to that. And she asked me several times again and again, and she really wanted me to. And I said no. And in a way, I'm sure many parents would disagree with me. And she was actually in tears. So to me and other non-royalists, it wouldn't matter. But clearly, she was very excited about it. So I think with my value system, it was still okay because I really, I knew this was important to me. It was a podcast conference and I don't really get a lot of professional development around podcasting. And so I put myself first, which felt really nice. And I feel bad about my daughter being in tears, but in a way it was in line with my value system. I guess going to a podcast conference could be seen as a promotable task because it can be developed the podcast further and so on. Yeah. What your example brings to light. And I think with mine as well is this balance between work and family. And, you know, we often talk about saying no to work to spend more time with family, but sometimes we have to say no to family to be able to do the important things at work. You know, we feel guilt about it and society doesn't necessarily support those decisions. The narrative is so much about women need to sacrifice their careers in order to support their families. And what we need to do, I think this is what you're podcast is largely about is being no to think about what your values and priorities are and make that balance, realizing you're not going to be the perfect parent all the time and you're not going to be the perfect podcaster all the time, but you're going to get that balance into place. And that was certainly what I opened with in terms of my learning. And by the way, you know, if it makes you feel helps you feel better, I have two really well balanced, successful children who are adults now. I'm really proud of them. While they still sometimes say, mom, you didn't go to all our school plays. I swear I was at all of them, but they don't think I was. Maybe I missed one. I don't know. (laughs) But that's okay. They came out the other end, you know, resilient and strong and independent. And that's what I wish for them. Mm, Very true. Beautifully said. You did mention that you have some 
advice for people on how to say no. But before that, I just want to understand, what are you at the moment saying no to? It sounds like you're saying no to some things that you didn't before. Just give us a flavor. What type of things do you say no to? And asking that question also, I'd have to combine it with what do I say yes to? There are singular decisions at any asking point, but it's, as you said, kind of put in the context of what's the litmus test? So we talked about, you know, what's non-promotable. I'm at a point in my career where there's no more promotions left for me. I'm like a senior faculty. I have a chair. I've done administrative work, you know, so now I'm turning 60. I'm thinking about how do I want to contribute to the world? And it gives me a little bit more latitude and to look at my personal mission, what I want to accomplish in this kind of final phase of my career. So what do I say no to? I say no to things that aren't aligned with what I'm focused on today. So right now, I'm very much focused on helping women and organizations fix the problem of women being overburdened with non-promotable work. So I say yes to podcasts where I can reach women who are and organizational leaders who are dealing with these things, they bring me fulfillment. So they fulfill me. And I think that's very important. They're a good use of my time in terms of efficiency. And they're important to who I am as a person. So I say yes to things, non-promotable tasks that fulfill me, that leverage my expertise, that are good use of my time. And sometimes they just give me a mental break and they fit in. So what am I saying no to? I'm saying no to invitations to talk at conferences on different topics that I'm not focused on right now. I say no to serving in administrative roles or in capacities that feel like it's taking me back in time instead of taking me forward. So what's important to me right now is to grow as a human being, to continue to contribute. I love to build things. And so if I have an opportunity to affect a larger organization to see the fruits of my labor pay off to a broad set of people, those are the things I'm saying yes to. And if they don't, I say no. So I'm assuming that you're not organizing all the birthday parties in your <laughs> faculty. Do you ever feel like you're mean by saying no? Or have you got over that? I'm not saying you are mean. I'm not, not mean. Obviously, I don't mean that at all. But I'm just, if I was saying no, as much as you're describing, I would feel mean. And I would worry what people would think about me. Well, all right. So first of all, how do you feel? So what we see in our research is women tend to experience more, these two emotions, more so than men do when they say no. They feel more guilt, which is kind of like, I feel mean, right? I feel guilty. I should be the helper. I should be the nice person. I feel guilty that I'm not helping you. So there's that. And there's fear, fear of backlash. Usually those two kind of emotions that come into play. And then for me personally, it was I was afraid of being viewed as not being the team player so that somehow they think of me differently than I thought of myself. It's kind of a challenge to my own personal identity. So those emotions all came into play and thoughts came into play whenever saying no. And yeah, I had to get over myself. I had to just remind myself that A, it's not my responsibility to always be the helper. B, I am a team player, but I don't have to say yes to everything to enact that, to be that person. And the fear of backlash, well, that needs to be managed because that's a potentially a real concern. And so I learned how to say no more effectively. Thank you so much. Can you tell me how you try to let down people gently, if at all, and how you say no so that the risk of a backlash is minimized? A goal for saying no is to be able to, in avoiding backlash, is to 
be able to help the asker solve their problem without taking on the work yourself. Like that's like the safe balance, right? When someone comes to you, they have a problem they need solved. They need help with something. They need someone to do something. They either don't have the time or capacity to do it themselves. So they're coming to you. So if we think about this as a bit of a negotiation or a problem solving session, a joint problem solving session, it's a good framework. And I think it's a comfortable framework for women to go in with because we're natural problem solvers, especially when it comes to help and helping people. So the first step is in saying no and avoiding backlash is think about information exchange, learning a little bit about what they're asking, what they need help with, and then providing a little bit of information about what you're currently working on, what your capacity is. You might have a deadline coming up for an important project, or you already are doing three other non-promotable tasks that are taking up a lot of your time, which the other person who's asking you probably doesn't know about. So the first thing is to give a little context. I'd really love to help you Let me think more about what you need. Unfortunately, I don't have the bandwidth right now to take that on, but let's talk a little bit more. Maybe I can help you identify a way to find someone to do what you need. So like that's the first step. And then the second is to brainstorm a little bit, right? So what do you need done? Is there someone else I know who can do it, who would benefit from doing it, right? If this is something I've done five times, you're probably coming to me because I've done it before and I do it well. Or I have a reputation of being a yes person. And women tend to be. We know in our research that's the case. So I can think about other people who would do this. Ideally, not another woman, right? Because we know women are 50% more likely to get asked to do a non-promotable task than men. So just knowing this base rate difference, we can break that cycle by recommending a man to do the task. Maybe they can benefit by meeting new people, by learning a new skill, by saying yes themselves, right? So that would be your first strategy is, is there someone else who could benefit from this? It also might be someone who's in a different role. If you're asking someone to serve on a committee to design a faculty lounge, right? So yeah, you need a faculty perspective in there, but you also could pull in someone who's an administrative assistant who also understands those needs and they could actually potentially do this and it could be promotable for them if it's something that gives them more access to higher levels of the organization and could fill into their support of the organizational structures and processes. So something to think about there. Another approach would be to break the task into parts. So instead of saying, I can just do this, just give it to me, I'll do it from top to bottom. Say, well, there's, here's a part of it that I can do and I can do quickly because I've done this before. And you can figure out other people to do the rest Is there an administrative assistant who can do the more logistical planning? And I'll help you identify speakers because I know the people, right, when planning a conference. So you break it into parts. Again, thinking creatively about what is this task? How can we reallocate it? And so on. So that's the second step. If that doesn't work, then you negotiate. You think about all the things you're doing and say, okay, if I'm going to take this on, what can I let go of to make room for it? Right. So instead of just making it additive, I'm just going to add another thing on top of everything else I'm doing. Let's look at this in terms of what can you help me take off my plate that is at least as time consuming as what you're asking me to do. If you're my boss, you should be able to help me do that. If you're not my boss, it's also easier to say no in the first place. Mm, That's very true. 
I did some research somewhere, you might disagree with me on it, but not helping seems to have a bigger negative impact on women than on men. I can see you nodding. So like you say, the fear of there being a backlash is not a completely unrealistic fear. What do you recommend to people dealing with that and being seen still as a likable leader? Not to say that everybody has to be likable. It's unrealistic, but just how do you manage that risk? So the research that you were mentioning is the foundation of that finding is all about expectations, right? Because we expect women to be helpers, when they don't help, it's a violation of an expectation, so we view them negatively. We don't expect men to help in these types of non-promotable task situations. So when they say no, it's business as usual, and it's okay. We don't view them negatively. So when men say yes, people like them more, he's a hero, Woo, look at him. Whereas if a woman says yes, they don't get any credit for it because they're just meeting expectations. So these expectations are really powerful. We also find that they drive the all the findings we're finding with respect to non-promotable tasks, that women are asked to do non-promotable tasks because we expect them to say yes. Women are 50% more likely to say yes. And we're also almost 50% more likely to volunteer to take on these tasks. We actually internalized it. So these expectations are incredibly powerful. And when we, of course, we know when we break the norms of expectations, it can backfire on us. I'll go back to why the solution of problem solving is so important and just raising awareness of the fact that some tasks are promotable, some tasks are not promotable, and everybody needs time to do their promotable work. So if you ask me to take on another task that takes away from my time to do the work that you need me to do, it's going to be bad for me, but it's going to also be bad for the organization. It's going to be bad for the person who's asking me. So this makes it, again, a joint shared problem because we've been talking about this in terms of women, right? Women need to say no. It's bad for women's careers. But organizations need to care about this too, and that managers do, because half their workforce is spending time on tasks that doesn't advance their careers. It's going to exacerbate the gender gap that we're trying to fix in the first place. Mm. Very interesting. I couldn't agree with you more. It's fascinating what you're saying, and there are so many I'm definitely going to add your book to the reading list for our fellowship program. I think it's absolutely essential reading. And as I mentioned to you before, I haven't had a chance to read it yet because my child was in hospital annoyingly, but I'm still going to read it. I think it sounds absolutely fascinating. So one thing I want to add to that and why I think what we try to do in the book is give the reader concrete advice about how to navigate the situation for women. We talk about very concrete suggestions about how to say no to avoid backlash, how to look at your work to figure out what's promotable and non-promotable, how to rebalance your work portfolio to bring it more in line with your male colleagues, how to see change in your organization. So we give women a lot of strategies. We also give organizational leaders strategies as well. Once you understand it, how to do an assessment in your work unit about who's doing what and how to fix the problem in terms of both how you allocate work. One hint, stop asking for volunteers. Easy thing to do, makes a big difference. And then allocate it more equitably. And also think about how jobs are designed and look at the work itself and make sure what's promotable is in the right category, what's non-promotable is in the right category, and everybody's doing their fair share. Mm. And I think just a simple thing you're doing of giving it a name 
promotable versus a non-promotable task is such a powerful tool for people to have those conversations and it's fantastic so we're unfortunately coming to the end of our time and i would love it if you could leave our listeners with three practical things that they could try this week to shift from their portfolio of work from lots of non-promotable work to more promotable work so i hinted at this already so the first thing i want to suggest to all our women listeners here and men to support the women in this resist the urge to volunteer the next time someone asks for help in managing a meeting in ordering lunch in picking up a birthday cake in cleaning up a slide presentation whatever it is sit on your hands look away do what your male colleagues are doing you know find something else to busy your attention but resist that urge to volunteer because women we do this to ourselves because we've internalized these expectations. So this is one thing you have control over. The second piece of advice is to do what I call an NPT assessment. Take a look at your workload and figure out which tasks are promotable and which are non-promotable using the criteria that I suggested. You know, is it visible? Is it instrumental to the organization's bottom line? Does it use the skills you were hired to do? And pull the promotable work aside and then look at what's non-promotable and decide, is this a good use of my time? Can somebody else be doing this? And this is point three, enlist the help of your mentors, start a no club, go to your boss and find ways to start balancing out your workload. You at least are being proactive instead of reactive. And of course, I'll add a fourth, the book, The Note Club, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead-End Work, as a great way to give you concrete advice about how to do that. We really wanted to help you navigate this situation based on our experience, based on the research. And when you're done with it, hand it over to your boss and give her the insight as well. Mm, fantastic. And I did see on your website that you're encouraging people to set up their own no clubs. I know they can find out more about that on the website, but any practical tips of how to do it? Some things. So find a, a group of women, keep the group relatively small. I would say four to six people is a perfect size so that everybody can stay engaged. Ideally, start with people who have similar challenges so that you can help one another and find a comfortable place to meet where you can have private conversations. Perhaps the most important piece of advice is to be good listeners, to be open to recognizing that everybody's experience is different. Everybody's struggle with saying no is different. And what works for you may not work for someone else. But if we can be there and support one another in navigating the situation, we're all in a better place. And that's certainly something we learned in our club. We each had very different reactions to our situations and very different triggers for why we had a hard time saying no. Our conversations helped us also determine solutions that would work for each of us. Mm, brilliant. Thank you so much. And where can people find out about you, about the book? Yeah, so the easiest place to go is our website. It's called thenoclub.com. Name of the book, thenoclub.com. On it, you'll see where you can buy the book. We've had a, some really nice media coverage. We give talks to organizations and women's groups on the topic. So you can read about that. We also have an excerpt on starting your own no club 
And we're going to be putting up, if it's not there already, some book club discussion questions as well. That's probably the best starting point. Fantastic. And this has been extremely inspiring and insightful. So thank you so much, Laurie. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to reach out to your listeners. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's conversation about saying no, you might also like episode 31, where I talk to our mentor, Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, about how to increase your impact without increasing your workload. Aviva is absolutely brilliant at saying no, and she's also someone that she does pretty high-impact stuff. She advises very senior leaders, executive boards, boards of how to do stuff better. So she's definitely, she really is good at saying no. If the podcast has been helpful to you, then please join our newsletter for practical tips and insights. And you can do so on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. And we are looking for individuals to get more involved in our movement, especially people who are really keen to support others and want to be not just progress their own careers, but also be the change for others. On our website, leadersplus.org.uk, you can see an overview of all our upcoming events. If you are very senior, you can also apply to be a senior leader mentor. And if you are a parent with kids between age 0 and 11, you can apply to join our fellowship program, which is a world-class career development program for parents. You'll get access to inspirational role models who have experience of bringing up kids whilst progressing their careers. You get support with workload management, saying no, developing your vision and making a plan for career and family life in small supportive group sessions. And of course, we'll share with you research on what causes career progression and how to implement this practically in the context of looking after young children. And because we believe we need to look at the system of support, not just individuals, there are sessions with your partner, should you happen to have one, and with your line manager, again, if you happen to have one. There's some hardship fund spaces available for those in financially challenging circumstances. So definitely don't hesitate in looking at applying. We always have quite a few of those available. Next week, you will hear from Christina Wenzing, who is a senior doctor, equality campaigner and change maker in Switzerland, who is absolutely brilliant at doing what is right rather than fitting in with social expectations and I think we really enjoy hearing from her. We're both Swiss so I think we connected really well amongst other things because of that. See you next week!